Uh, look, a couple of quick things at the outset, everyone. Um, we, uh, Suzanne and I uh, have spoken to each other before and we hope that we'll have a lively conversation. Uh, but lively conversations are a bit difficult on Zoom because uh, the latency in the system, the delay, means that we might keep cutting across each other. So we're going to risk doing that, but don't think that we don't like each other or we're sort of talking all over each other. It's just the electronics that's doing that. Um, uh, we're, we're going to try to sort of interview each other a bit, which is always a bit difficult. And we both have a few short readings, so uh, that should, should split things up a bit. Now, having said all that, I'm going to kick off um, and ask you, Suzanne, um, a, a bit about your background, because your background isn't really sort of typical for an environmentalist, a scientist, and now an author. Yeah, um, well, thank you for having me, John. And uh, um, so I say John or Jonathan, J Jonathan. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's been so fun to talk to you and read your book and what a delightful book. So, um, but back to your question about me, um, I, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a logging family, actually. My great grandfather was a horse logger and he, he originally um, came from France and moved to Quebec and they were horse loggers, the Simar family in Quebec, and then migrated across Canada to British Columbia where my, they horse logged here as well. And so did my grandfather and my dad and uncles. So that's where I grew up. I grew up in these big old forests, these inland rainforests of British Columbia, full of cedars and hemlocks and white pines. And they were majestic cathedral forests. <laughs> so, so horse logging is, 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 um, is, that's not really the sort of clear felling that we kind of see, we often see pictures of. That's a different kind of process. Yeah, no, not not at all. It's completely different. So yeah, clear felling or clear cutting what we, we call in, in North America is where they take everything, right? The big trees, the little trees, um, it's all gone. And the idea is to create this, well, first, first to make you know, a lot of money from it, but also to create this really open environment where there's a lot of light to regenerate or plant the next forest. Whereas what my my grandparent, my ancestors did is that they, they did what's called selective logging. So they would go in and just take out one or two trees in a week. <laughs> so they, I remember um, going into the forest with my grandpa Henry, and he would, you know, we would go up there with the horses and, and the little crew, which was were his sons, my dad and Uncle Jack, um, and Uncle Odie, and he would make a little map for the day and point out where all, you know, where all the trees were and say, okay, we're going to cut down, you know, this white pine. And that felling of that white pine would take maybe a couple of days. And, and so everything was really slow and small. And when we left the area, there was still a forest, right? There was still a forest with little gaps in it. That very much different kind of feel for the um, the sort of logging that certainly was the the, the norm uh, in this country as well as I think in Canada in in, in say the 1970s 80s 90s so a, a very different kind of feel. Yeah, I mean it was it was a completely different mindset too, right? A different philosophy. So the the philosophy of my grandpa was to leave the forest intact and only take what you need. And it was a regenerative practice, whereas the, the clear cutting in North America was an exploitive practice, whereas they were trying to make as much money as they possibly could from the forest and, you know, and then have to regenerate it afterwards to make more money from it in the future. And so, so of course, my grandfather was trying to make a living from the forest, but, but he wasn't trying to, you know, feed shareholders and CEOs and make wealth. He was just trying yeah, to and, feed and maybe maybe he had an eye on uh, future generations of uh, of his family and, and, and absolutely so on. because so, it was a generational. So uh, th this lovely book of yours, I um. Uh, I think, you know, we've we've uh, heard a little of the sort of, uh, you know, your intellectual position on, on forestry. It's clearly about regenerative practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered whether uh, it's sort of page seven, it's the, I, I, the, the piece that starts, I was alone in grizzly country. Yeah. And I wondered whether you just read us a, a page and a, a page and a bit down to the rapids, uh, because that's sure. actually about the, um, uh, you know, your family and, uh, you know, they, Grandpa Henry comes in at the end. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. So this is chapter one. Um, it's called Ghosts in the Forest. Um, I was alone in grizzly country, freezing in the June snow. 20 years old and green, I was working a seasonal job for a logging company in the rugged Lillooet Mountains of Western Canada. 
the forest was shadowed and deathly quiet, and from where I stood, full of ghosts. One was floating straight toward me. I opened my mouth to scream, but no sound emerged. My heart lodged in my throat as I tried to summon my rationality, and then I laughed. The ghost was just heavy fog rolling through, its tendrils encircling the tree trunks. No apparitions, only the solid timbers of my industry. The trees were just trees. And yet Canadian forests were always felt haunted to me, especially by my ancestors, the ones who defended the land or conquered it, who came to cut, burn and farm the trees. It seems the forest always remembers even when we'd like it to forget our transgressions. It was mid-afternoon already. Mist crept through the clusters of subalpine firs, coating them with a sheen. Light refracting droplets held entire worlds. Branches burst with emerald new growth over a fleece of jade needles. Such a marvel, the tenacity of the buds to surge with life every spring, to greet the lengthening days and warming weather with exuberance no matter what hardships were brought by winter. Buds encoded to unfold with primordial leaves in tune with the fairness of previous summers. I touched some feathery leaves, needles, comforted by their softness. Their stomata, the tiny holes that drop in carbon dioxide to join with water to make sugar and pure oxygen, pumped fresh air for me to gulp. Nestled against the towering, hardworking elders were teenage saplings, and leaning into them were even younger seedlings, all huddling, as families do in the cold. The spires of the wrinkled old firs stretched skyward, sheltering the rest. The way my mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, protected me. Goodness knows I'd needed as much care as a seedling, giving I was always getting into trouble. When I was 12, I'd crawled along a sweeper tree leaning over the Shuswap River to see how far I could go. I tried to retreat but slipped and fell into the current. Grandpa Henry jumped into his hand-built riverboat and grabbed my shirt collar right before I would have disappeared into the rapids. So that's it. You said a lovely way to start the uh, start the book. And I think there's a sort of, um, you know, we both approached it in the same way about the family of trees, but also our own uh, our own families. Yeah. And I, 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 sorry. Yeah, and I, you know, it's such a contrast, right? You you grew up around Kew Gardens and um, with your mom and dad, and and I, you know, I was fascinated by your own introduction, and I was wondering, John, then if you could read <laughs> for me too, <laughs> if you could read from page bottom of page nine and tell me, you know, about your inspirations. Um, yeah. So. I, I, I um, uh, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I'll read this. Uh, one of my earliest memories is of a spectacular cedar of Lebanon near our home. One winter morning, we found it dead, its trunk and limbs strewn haphazardly and being sawn up. It had been struck by lightning. That was the first time I saw my father cry. I thought about the huge, heavy, beautiful tree that was hundreds of years old and that I had thought invincible and wasn't. And my father, whom I had thought would always be in benign control of everything and wasn't. I recall my mother saying that there had been a whole world in that tree. I remember puzzling over that. My mother was right. There was a whole world in that tree and so there is in every tree. They warrant our appreciation and many of them need our protection. And at the time, uh, you know, it was a very sort of moving moment for me because of my parents' relationship with trees. Um, but at the time, I took that literally. I took the what my mother said, there was a whole world in that tree, meaning that there were lots of insects and creatures that all depended on each other and so on. Uh, it was only decades later that I realised that uh, my mother was um, looking at my father, who had lost his family in the Second World War. Mm. And... Uh, you know, the tree was a metaphor for the family. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, was mm -hmm. a, it was a sort of really hard moment when I suddenly came to that realization much later in life. Yeah. But you, um, you know, made this transition from uh, working in, in logging, uh, doing the family business, 
to uh, being a scientist and mm -hmm. wanting to protect trees in a way which was probably different from even the way your grandfather would have wanted to protect trees. I don't know. Um, yeah. how, how did you make that transition? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, jo Jonathan, what, what we share in common is that we both love trees <laughs> and we both love our families and, um, and we see we see them in each other, you know, I, I think, so I had that sense, right? I had that sense of caring about the forest and caring about my family. And that to me, they were one in the same thing because I just grew up in that, right? The, the family literally lived in the forest. We literally in, in the, the summers, we lived on a logger's houseboat and we, um, and I, I participated in, you know, these old, old ways of logging. And it was just how we made our livelihoods. We, 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 we lived in these majestic forests and I saw them re regenerate, you know, these, you know, as soon as there was a gap in the forest created by the logging, the hemlocks and the cedars would burst into the openings. And just... But how did you make the transition from that sort of life that you were, you yeah, were leading to, because... to being a, um, a, a, you know, a, a, an academic, a scientist? Yeah, because I, I I became a forester, not even knowing what a forester was. Um, and it was at a time, it was in the late 70s and early 80s when I joined the Faculty of Forestry at UBC as an undergraduate student. And it was among the first years they were letting girls into the faculty because it was a man's world. Um, and I didn't know that I wanted to be a scientist at that time. I didn't even really know what a forester was. Um, but when I started, you know, all the students back then got jobs in the forest industry or some way to do with forestry. And so I got these summer jobs working for this industry that was mowing down the forest, basically, you know, like what we talked about this clear cutting, clear felling. And, and I, I could see it, it was so, you know, wrong. So it felt so wrong to me. And, and of course, and I, I was, my job was to repopulate these clear cuts with, with seedlings, which were, you know, always of one species and, you know, they didn't do well, you know, they were sickly. And so I, I set on this quest to figure out what were we doing wrong, even though, to, you know, I look back and obviously it was, it's clearer now to me, you know, but I didn't, as a young woman, I, I was just so happy to have a job and to be out there and yet seeing this very conflicting environment. And so, yeah, eventually I became a scientist to try to figure that out. You know, so, what so you were we doing? You, you say um, that it's kind of obvious to you now, but yeah. I, you know, I know plenty of people, uh, you know, who are running commercial forests um, around the world, who mm -hmm. uh, for whom it is still not obvious. <laughs> so, so maybe for 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 the audience at least, you could you, you know spell out what what be, well what, your path to finding the solution and also how it is now obvious and what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one thing about about forestry is there is no single solution, but but um, but there are singular pr principles, and uh, and so the principles are you know that that forests you know they're built from something just like families are built from parents and grandparents you know kids are born into their families, and they rely on the history the knowledge that is accumulated in their families their societies and so on it's the same in forests right so you know, a forest regrows from, you know, the seeds of old trees, and they're facilitated by the presence of elders. Um, these are just trees that are retained. Uh, we call it, you know, retention forestry now, or, you know, where you, you, you just take out a few trees, or maybe quite a few trees, but you still leave, you know, these legacies, these old elder trees and they facilitate the regeneration not only by providing seed but by these by their whole below ground networks which is what I studied right I was interested in what was going under the in the soil and you know all of these trees form what are called mycorrhizas which are you know these symbiotic organisms these fungi that associate with all trees all over the world and they're called obligate mutualists in that the fungi receive photosynthate from the trees and then they use that energy to grow through the soil picking up nutrients and water and delivering it back to the tree so, and so, so we're talking about um uh, a variety of different fungal species here it's not just like there's one kind of mycorrhizal network there, there are lots of different fungal species and they're associated with uh, you know, each one or two or, or a handful of each will be associated with different species of trees. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are literally thousands and thousands of these mycorrhizal fungal species in the world. Um, I think the last count was like, you know, of all the fungi, there were like 55,000 species or something. Um, Douglas fir alone can, can associate with thousands of species. Okay. But in a single forest, like in a hectare, for example, there's probably one or 200 species present. And, uh, and they're of all these, you know, different functions, right? Some, some of them are really good, are, are old, old species. I call them old growth fungi. Um, that's kind of a colloquial name, but they grow on old, old trees and they are thick and uh, fleshy and they grow long, a lot of them long distances. They pick up nutrients and from hard to get places and then deliver them back to the tree. And then so other think- fungi do other jobs, right? So, so they all have their own job, um, their own okay, niches. So, so um- uh, you know, when people think about fungi, uh, they might think about just what what you might call the fruiting bodies of the fungi, mm-hmm. you know, the bits above ground that look like uh, a little thing that Alice in Wonderland would perch on, you know, the, the mushroom, <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Um, but uh, but th- that's not the full extent of the organism, is it? There's a, there's a whole other world underground. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the the mushroom is just the tip of the iceberg. So um, it's the fruiting body. It's like the apple on a tree. And so it's got the spores that will, you know, disperse and then spawn new fungal mycelium elsewhere. But the vast majority of the fungus, you know, 99% of it is this mycelium, these fungal threads that grow through the soil and they coat the soil pores, they coat soil granules, and they work on those granules of soil to get at the nutrients. Um, So yeah, it's packed full of these fungal threads, the soil. So, so um, the, the fungus benefits by uh, getting the products of photosynthesis, the sugars and whatnot, from the from the tree roots. Um, uh, you know that it's got originally from the leaves and the rest of the plant, mm-hmm. and the tree benefits by getting these sort of uh, nutrients from the soil that it, the roots wouldn't otherwise be able to extract. It's this lovely yeah. uh, relationship. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it costs a lot to build, for a tree to build a root. You know, it's got to invest in cellulose and lignin and all these other compounds that make a root strong and thick. Um, so fungi are much less expensive to construct. They don't have big thick cell walls. They don't have lignin. And so it doesn't take that much energy for a tree to build these or to supply the energy to <laughs> for the fungi to build their mycelium. So it's really and, cost and these, effective. These networks... Um... Uh, then can uh, you know they they they're carrying things uh, actual sort of molecules of stuff yeah. around the forest aren't they so um, yeah it, 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 what what did you find well you know so when I started doing this work um, you know I back then in the 1980s um, the forestry practices were really really you know designed to reduce competitive effects of other plants in the forest and other trees. And so people were really concerned about the big resources that trees need, light, water, nutrients, and light converted to chemical energy. And so that's what I looked at first. What was transmitting through these networks? You know, was it photosynthate? Was it nitrogen? Was it water? And I looked at all three of those groups of of resources. Um, And I found that they do all of them move right through the network. Um, I started out with photosynthate, basically labeling trees with carbon-13 and carbon-14, where they would take up the CO2, tag CO2, and then I would trace where it went in through the network. And it ended up in neighboring trees. And so I was able to track that. Later on, I started to ask, you know, more questions about other information that might transmit through the network. And I was building on work done by people in China, people in the UK who had been looking at, um, and in the US, looking at how insects and pathogens might stimulate uh, stress responses or, or, or um, defense responses within a plant and whether or not those defense responses were conveyed to neighbors through their mycorrhizal networks. And we found that they did. Um, and so this has been shown actually among herbaceous plants that form a group called our buscular mycorrhizal networks. And then we tested in um, in our forests in Canada, which are mostly ectomycorrhizas, which are a different group of fungi. And sure enough, we found that this kind of information transmits from tree to tree, even of trees of different species. And the recipient tree of this information is able to upregulate its RNA, produce more defense enzymes, and be more protected against that stressor on the neighboring tree. So, so, so people, people often ask, you know, well, why, why um, don't the, uh, the trees just have that kind of defense all the time and the point is that it takes a lot of energy and, and so on to, to have that 
And so much better if you, you know, something's chomping this tree, it sends out, uh, uh, or, or at least there is a signal that can be eavesdropped on. We'll come, come on to whether it's uh, sending or, or, or not. Right, um, yeah. And uh, another tree can respond and that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that's good for the, uh, uh, for the trees. And there's this, you know, some of us were brought up in this kind of, um, if you excuse the metaphor, a sort of dog eat dog world mm -hmm. of, um, you know, everything in competition. And there is surely competition for light and sure. so on in a forest. Sure. But there's also this this uh, kind of odd, uh, it almost looks like altruism, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's something in it for everybody, right? Like, it, I don't think it's really altruism. It's, um, so if you look at you know, what I found in my initial doctoral studies was that, for example, I was I was concerned about competition because all these forestry practices were geared around reducing competition to conifers, which was what the industry was trying to grow. Um, and so I looked at how birch, which was considered a weed and was aggressively sprayed, cut, destroyed. Um, uh, there was a war on birch, aspen, cottonwood, um, maples, anything that was deciduous in Canada. Uh, there, you know, they were basically annihilated. And so I was thinking, well, you know, it, at the same time, seeing diseases, you know, run, you know, through these cleansed plantations. And so I thought, is birch really a competitor? Or is it also sharing you know, resources below ground. And so I, you know, what I found was that the more birch shaded Douglas fir, the more carbon it also transmitted to Douglas fir. And so they were, and then this sort of net transfer from reversed in the fall and the spring when, when fir was actually more photosynthetic than birch. And, and so it wasn't, you know, they were both benefiting from this association. It wasn't altruism. It was like, uh, it, it, you know, the, the whole community benefited. It reduced the disease and, load. And of in the... course, yeah. And I, 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 sorry, sorry for cutting across. I, I, of course, one of the great beneficiaries in all this is the fungus. Um, you yes, know, the, the, course, the fungus yeah. kind of wins every which way, doesn't it? And if it you does. look at it from the fungus's point of view, then it's absolutely fantastic to have, um, you know, things that are photosynthesizing all over the place and a, a forest that is healthy because you're going to get so much more in the way of nutrient. So, true. so yep. one one of the questions that um, you know I'm I'm sure you're you're asked is uh, you know you use in the book and I think you use rather carefully the the words sentience and agency. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Now you know when I give tree talks, one of the things that people most often ask is, "Are trees intelligent?" And then in my mm. sort of you know slightly studenty kind of way, I say, "Well, it depends what you mean on intelligence and and, mm -hmm. and so on," but I. Um, I wonder where you stand on this sort of, uh, you know, uh, sentience and agency in, in trees. Yeah, you know, this is, is, this is a difficult topic for us as scientists because, you know, we're, we're trying to describe these phenomena that we see with our scientific tools. You know, that, you know, for example, I've found that the network below ground has got the same architecture as a biological neural network and that the the compounds that transmit through that network are very similar if some of them are even the same as neurotransmitters in our own brains. And so there's all these uh, cross system uh, conservation of these uh, patterns, these processes, uh, but they're not the same. I mean, a, a forest and a plant doesn't have a brain, it doesn't have a nervous system, but these patterns are highly efficient, they're highly resilient, and so they're, they evolve through, you know, through many systems. And, um, and so this leads me to say, okay, well, what am I looking at here? These, you know, there's this network, the, it allows trees to perceive each other, they, res they respond to each other, um, they make, you know, they make decisions about where, where to grow their roots, where to, you know, grow their branches, um, they do have agency in their health in the future. And, um, and so, you know, so whether or not they're going to continue to thrive and, 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 and grow tall and, um, and, and shed seeds, and those decision points about tree that trees make are about agency for their future. And so then you think, well, you know, doesn't, isn't the, aren't those the hallmarks of intelligence? Isn't that an intelligent way to carry out your life? And then, you know, people will say, oh, well, you can't use the word intelligence because that's a human word and it describes what we do. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. But I think what more that shows us is the limitations of the English language, that we actually don't have words to describe this incredible phenomenon that we see in trees and plants. And I just add one point that, you know, many of the ancient languages. So, for example, I live in North America. There are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Aboriginal nations that live here that have words to describe these phenomena. And those languages are being rapidly lost but the the nations are trying to hang on to them to try to recover their languages and they they have words for this and i find that amazing right that um that you know the english language needs to evolve a little bit so that we are able to better discuss and 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 uh understand each other about what we mean about these phenomena yes yeah i i, I very much agree with you the the um uh, you know when when we hear about uh, you know a signal effectively being sent from a tree to another tree, um, you know it's uh, you immediately want to know sort of where, where is there intentionality in that? You know, mm -hmm. does the tree register that there's another tree somewhere else that it needs to protect, or is it just that when this happens, it, you know, such and such a chemical reaction happens, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as a result of that you know, it wafts through the air or goes through the fungal network and has mm -hmm. an effect on something else in the way that a computer mm -hmm. modem is not an intelligent mm -hmm. device. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very hard to have these conversations with the limited language that we have, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, um, and, our, and our limited understanding as well. Uh, you know, I think in some ways, you know, we've, Western science has been amazing in allowing us to, to you know, get a, a, a little look at at these incredible things that trees and plants are doing, but it's limited, you know? So, you know, for example, in experiments, you, you know, an, a biologist is like overjoyed when they can explain 50% of the variation and how that plant is working. And that other 50%, you say, oh, well, it's just something I don't understand. Well, that is where the magic lies, right? That is, that is where we don't understand that, but that is um, what gives that community of plants health and vigor and beauty and, you know, able to have emergent things like, you know, the ability to have biodiversity and carbon sequestration and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, is One of the things purpose? that I am. Um, oh, I beg your yeah. pardon. Sorry, it's that delay again. <laughs> yeah, ahead. no, no, it's okay. Yeah, go ahead, John. Uh, well, no, I was, I was going to say that uh, one of the things that um, I think uh, from your writing, uh, you know, you and I very much have in common is this feeling that, um, you know, humanity, uh, we are part of nature, not separate mm -hmm. from nature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is something that I suppose right back to Darwin, you know, those who, who you know, uh, th there is a sort of philosophical difference between the people who think that, you know, uh, man, usually man rather than woman, uh, is, is in God's image and, mm -hmm. and everything else is subservient. And uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the thought that actually we are part of nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that you and I are probably on the we are part of nature end of the spectrum. We def definitely, when I read your book, this is about people and trees, right? This is about how people have, have uh, interacted with and, and loved and cared for trees for a long, long time. And in return, the trees look after the people. And my book is very similar, right? Can like, I um, suggest, yeah. actually, that, um, I'm just trying to think what page it is. It's 294 in your book. Um, the uh, uh, I hope you've got the same edition. <laughs> you've probably got the. You never know. I've, I've got the American edition, but I think it's the same. Um, so, so what we're going to try and do here, folks, is that um, Suzanne will read a paragraph, um, uh, half a page. I'll read a page of mine, and she'll uh, come back with a, a half, uh, another, the second half of the page, and we'll um, and you'll see what the sort of similarity is between us um it's got a bit of politics in it as well so, so so if you you start with i don't presume okay and do you want me to go down to down, down like, to the um the salish concept okay and then you've got your part picked yeah. out yes yeah. okay okay then here we go <laughs> we'll see how this goes john <laughs> okay i don't presume to grasp aboriginal knowledge fully it comes from a way of knowing the earth an epistemology different from that of my own culture. It speaks of being attuned to the blooming of the bitterroot, the running of the salmon, the cycles of the moon, of knowing we are tied to the land, the trees and animals and soil and water, and to one another, 
and that we have a responsibility to care for these reconnections and resources, ensuring the sustainability of these ecosystems for future generations, and to honor those who came before, of treading lightly, taking only what gifts we need, and giving back of showing humility toward and tolerance for all we are connected to in this life, this circle of life. But what my years in the forestry profession have shown me is that too many decision makers dismiss this view, this way of viewing nature and rely only on select parts of science. The impact has become too devastating to ignore. We can compare the condition of the land where it has been torn apart, each resource treated in isolation from the rest, to where it has been cared for according to the Shepomek principle of Quetzanuts, translated as we are all related, and the Salish concept of Netsamatst, we are one. That's beautiful. And um, uh, since you, you've, you've sort of brought in politics, I'll, I'll, I'll do my bit here. <laughs> and, then, and then perhaps you can come back with the second paragraph on that. Sure. Yeah. So this is from uh, Around the Wells and 80 Plants, which is uh, the, the sibling for uh, 80 Trees. And this again is from, uh, the, you know, the book is uh, biographies of, of different plants, but the, this one is, is, this piece is from the introduction. Plants, animals, fungi, and every little critter depend on each other in complex webs of life that are diverse and astounding. But just as in the parlor game where players take turns to remove components of a tower until it finally teeters and falls, so when individual species are threatened, our ecosystems become less resilient until they are so fragile that one extra nudge could make a whole system collapse. Our futures depend on these ecosystems and the relationships between them, but sadly, Biodiversity is under threat from rampant human consumption, our agricultural practices, and climate change. They're all related. How much our species consumes and its effect on the environment are linked to our growing numbers, but also to the choices we make about the quantity of goods we buy and how their materials are mined and produced, the energy that individuals or industries use, our modes of travel, the techniques we use for construction, and so on. Unfortunately, once the effects of climate change are painfully obvious to all, it will be too late to avert calamity. Given sufficient incentives, the adaptations we must make are within our grasp, and many of the solutions we either know already or could use our ingenuity to develop. But those incentives require resolute governments that are willing to implement carbon taxes, subsidize green technologies, and if we continue to dither, probably ration some products and activities. We need gutsy, far-sighted leaders resistant to the lobbying of those who stand to make short-term gain by obfuscating the issue. Thoughtful decision-makers with the grit to deliver messages that the public don't want to hear, but with the charisma and mandate to be heeded. Each country must believe that we're all in this together, a coalition against a common climate enemy, rather than playing a zero-sum game in which your, your win means my loss. If people feel they're making sacrifices that others are not, they will resist change. Moving swiftly and decisively to a more sustainable, low-carbon world will be difficult. True, some businesses will fail, but others will flourish in new niches, just as plants evolve with their habitats. Some fun will stop, other amusements will take their place. We should encourage our leaders and our media to address the big question of our age. How can we migrate quickly to a lower consumption, lower carbon world while remaining happy and fulfilled. That's brilliant. So that's my my take, uh, yeah, that's which is brilliant. a response to yours. And I'd like to uh, ask you to read this, the second paragraph on page 294 from I Believe This Kind. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so I believe this kind of transformative thinking is what will save us. It is a philosophy of treating the world's creatures, its gifts as of equal importance to us. This begins by recognizing that trees and plants have agency. They cooperate, make decisions, learn and remember qualities we normally ascribe to sentience, wisdom, intelligence. By noting how trees, animals, and even fungi, any and all non-human species have this agency, we can acknowledge that they deserve as much regard as we accord ourselves. We can continue pushing our earth out of balance, 
with greenhouse gases accelerating each year, or we can regain balance by acknowledging that if we harm one species, one forest, one lake, this ripples through the entire complex web. Mistreatment of one species is mistreatment of all. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah um, we've hit on uh, the same thing, John, even though we've written separately in separate countries, and yet <laughs> our philosophies have converged. And I, I think we share this with many people, actually. And I, I, I think that this will, this transformative thinking, it will, it will take off, I think. It's just, it's just how soon can we make it happen? Yeah, and, and I think the, the danger is that there, that there, there are enough people who have um, you know short-term gains to be made out mm -hmm. of preventing that kind of thinking and uh, you know that that's difficult within our political systems in a way what you want is a bit uh, you know is a dictatorship but a benign one <laughs> you know or other you and I with could the, be dictators. With the right dictators right like yeah, yeah us. <laughs> yeah yeah us um, you know because in a uh, in, in democracies, it's, it's uh, you know, we have systems of lobbying and we have, uh, you know, sort of, you know, lots of things that stop actually good decisions being made, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, uh, you know, the media that are meant to hold people to account actually, you know, tend to just make a story out of everything. You know, it's very hard for politicians, <laughs> yeah. even if they have their hearts in the right place. Right. Um, you know, what, what do you sort of, you know, as a uh, coming from a sort of logging family, uh, mm -hmm. Into the uh, into this sort of I don't I was going to say poacher turned gamekeeper but I'm not quite sure whether it, which way round it is, you know, d what kind of regulation do you do you think that is yeah. is needed and would and would work? Well, you know, I've thought long and hard about this as you have too, and and I I noticed in your reading that you've hit on some of these I think so solutions in the short term until we can. Um, find a better way to, you know, work within our, so I think within our economic system, which is an, a capitalistic system um, that we're, you know, that's based on growth, right? It's based on economic growth. And I don't see that system changing anytime soon. There's huge uh, momentum for that system. Um, and we only have, for, for climate change, we only have a decade or two not even that, we've got to act now, right? So how do we change how we value our natural world? Um, because right now we're exploiting it, right? We're, we're seeing species extinctions and climate change and, you know, this, you know, you know fertilization of the Northern hemisphere. And um, how do we change that? Well, I think one way we can do it is to value, place a monetary value on these other services that the ecosystems provide. And I hate to use that word because it's very economic, but you know, the, the very life-sustaining support that it provides us, we need to value that. You know, what I mean, that I imagine. Real, yeah. It is a real problem, isn't it? That it um, is. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, you know economists sometimes call it externalities. You know the, yes. the, the the sort of all the all the benefits that um, organizations companies um, get and profit from uh, mm -hmm. that are kind of the commons, um, the commons are not paid yeah. for, and all the damage yeah. that is done to the commons is not paid for. Either. Right, it's publicized. It's the public yeah. um, risk, uh, you know, which is yeah. obviously a, a you know a huge a huge issue. Um, yeah. I want to remind, uh, we, we've got about uh, sort of 18 or 19 minutes left, and I, I wanted to remind those who are listening um, to uh, stick in questions in the Q&A. Um, those are being um, you know, fantastically and efficiently filtered by the Daisy and her team in the background and uh, fed to me on a mobile, which is why I keep looking down. Mm -hmm. so <laughs> it's not because I'm not... Um, yeah. Uh, concentrating. Uh, there's there's a question here which I had been intending to ask anyway from uh, an, an anonymous question, which is, you know, the the, the world of logging. Um, you know, if, if ever there was a male-dominated world, surely it's kind of lumberjacks and logging, and uh, you know, it, it's the archetypal male world. And, and you've, yeah. uh, you know, na not only navigated that, but uh, but really sort of, uh, you know, found your own your own route and how. how difficult has that been for a for a, for a woman in in western canada should i laugh hysterically or just answer your question <laughs> well I, I think you've answered it haven't you <laughs> 
I mean, a lot of bumbling along, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, but also just persevering, right? I, and what else was I to do, right? I was just so, I love the forest. My whole world is about forest and my family. And, um, and so I just, my heart and soul is in it, you know, just because I love it so much. And um, was, your and so mother, I, I just, was your mother a really sort of strong role model? Yeah, I guess she was, you know, in her own quiet way. And my grandmother as well, very stubborn. Um, but they all, you know, grew up from the land and, you know, and a lot of, you know, difficult things too, right? Um, death and birth and, you know, just survival. Um, they didn't have the opportunities I had, but um, that they certainly promoted my sister and I to, to go on to university and make something of ourselves. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so I made my way into this world and I loved it because I grew up in the danger of it all I grew up in the majesty of it all I you know where where people lost hands and arms and legs and but persevered and so that's what I was um and I also had a, and this is super important for all girls that are going into male-dominated fields is to is to get your support system in place because there will be hard knocks it's just is the nature of the beast right so, you, you, you know, have the support system. I had a great supervisor in the Forest Service, Alan Vise, who is actually from Britain. And he, um, you know, he stood behind me and, and that was essential. If, he, if I hadn't had Alan, I think I would have, I don't know what would have happened, but yeah. he allowed me to pursue my scientific questions. And, you know, and, and, he, and he came to bat for me when, when, the, when the haters came along and, um, and tried to squish me. So that is absolutely essential. And those people exist, right? They're precious. They're like gold and you can find them. I, th I think I, this is something that, um, you know, I often uh, am asked by people starting out on their careers, you know, what, you know, what have I learned kind of thing. And, and you know, make sure that you have role models and you have mentors. And, um, it, you know, it's especially important for, uh, for women entering male dominated worlds for, you know, people from different backgrounds who aren't represented in the, in the area they're going into and so on, it becomes especially important. But it, mm. it's, um, uh, people don't often, don't always realize that actually for the mentor as well as the mentee, if that's the word, um, mm -hmm. you know, there is real benefit in the relationship. You know, the, it's, it's not a one way thing. It's, it's like these trees, you know, that they're, yeah, uh, it's they're getting reciprocal. something from each other. Yeah, it's totally reciprocated. You know, and all that care that Alan gave me um, over the years, I've been able to give back in spades to my graduate students. And he taught me how to be there for a person, how to have their back, right? And when the tough gets going, you're right there. I mean, and you, but at the same time, you're a teacher and a modeler. So sometimes those students students and, and you, you, you can get into trouble, right? Like you get the wrong idea or, or, or you get astray and, um, and, you know, as a supervisor, your job is to bring them back in or, or try to show them a way. So um, yeah, and, and it takes a lot of strength to do that, but you know, we have that in us and that's how we bring each other up. That's how trees bring up their seedlings. It's, you know, it's through perseverance, hard work and sharing our knowledge and sharing our resources and, you know, moving forward as a team. And, you know, you um, have chosen to uh, sort of communicate about your work. Um, and I, I get the impression from the from the book and the way that it's kind of, uh, you know, there's plenty of science in there, but it's really a sort of um, autobiographical uh, kind of story of your journey, yeah. which is kind of what, what makes it so sort of readable and such yeah. a joy, really. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm interested to know, you know, what, what your um, motivation actually is with the book. Is it, you know, mm. I, I uh, sort of get the feeling from just the way that you are, that it's not really about the pursuit of fame and fortune. There's something <laughs> else there. Yeah. And I, I think the same is true for you. I mean, when I read your book, I, I read all these stories, right? And they're engaging and they make you want to know more. Um, it's the same with me, right? Like, uh, I feel like, and I think you you probably share this, is that you can write like a million journal articles about trees and or whatever scientific phenomenon 
and they sit in journal articles and mo- the public doesn't read them, right? Other, they're for other scientists and, and it, they have an important role. It's called peer review and it hones the science. It makes sure that it's rigorous and tested and critiqued. And, um, and then, but then, you know, how do you put it into action? How do you get it into people's hearts and minds? That's where real change happens. And to do that, you need to get it out of those silos, those those vaults in the library, and put it out there where people will actually read it. And, and I wanted to tell my story. There's so many things I could say, but to tell it in a way that they read a story and absorb the science at the same time. They don't have to work at it. Um, that, and, that, but- that exactly you know, that, that's, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Yeah. The same. Yeah. And you achieve yeah. that, right? Like, I'm just like, okay, what about this next tree? What about the, the blue Quandong? I want to know, right? Like you just, you want to know because it's so interesting. And um, yeah. And, and, and it's really important that we do this because, you know, because people need to know this stuff, right? They need to know how important trees are and forests are, just as oceans and meadows are to our livelihood. And and they need and people love stories. You know, and, we listen to stories. It, so, so you chose, um, as I did, uh, you know, words, uh, words on a page. Um, it, you know, there the are questions here. One, one's from uh, Alex, um, uh, sort of asking about you know other media. And and whether you know, I mean, the implication of his question is, uh, or her question is, is uh, you know, um, is, is you know, is this you know, would you like to explore other media, or or you know, why did you start with a book? Well, I have worked with other media already, and I, I imagine you have too. Um, so um, documentary films are really highly effective, and uh, interviews and podcasts and films. So there's going to be a feature film made on my book. And I think that all of those media um, play an important role, right? They, they reach a wider audience. They deliver the messages in unique and creative ways. That, and, and for me, they even generate new scientific insights, right? Art and science are so similar and they can inform each other. So I've learned so much by working with with other media, with other people working in all these different so, so, mediums. So when you say that art and science are so similar, um, yeah. I think I understand what you mean, but I, I think that a lot of people might be quite surprised by that. So uh, to tell me what you mean. Well, they're both about creative process, right? About about taking your ideas and 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 creating something, um, you know, to to convey those ideas. So you might think like creating a painting that is an obvious way to do that, but in science, it is this idea. Like I had this idea that that the trees were in a connected world. Well, how do I convey that, or how do I figure that if that's true? And then how do I test it, and how do I create this experiment that might show it and that creation of the experiment is that's like making a painting right oh I'm going to test this and I'm going to do it over here and I'm going to you know I'm going to look at all these collab correlations and and it really is is like creating a painting and in the end you see what emerges out of that painting um, is even more than what you sought out to create in the first place you know it's got messages for you that you didn't even know that you were creating and if certainly other people look at it and they get ideas and that's what I've found in my experiments is that I've learned I, way more than I set out to to to, to find out. I, uh, yes and I, I think that they're uh, that both art and science are about curiosity and discovery yeah. and uh, you know the 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 one is um, you know very much based on uh, conveying emotion I suppose in, in art but um, science is about conveying ideas but they're both at their heart that have this sort of curiosity and discovery, which is yeah. uh, unfortunately something that our education system doesn't always a- a- acknowledge um, because they, they see the one about being learning facts or something. Yeah, it can get kind of confusing and strict, um, but I think we do need to make this space for kids to, to explore, um, especially outside is really, <laughs> will stimulate not just the artistic process, but the scientific process in all of us. Well, and, and, and the, uh, and outside the, the, the wish to protect. Um, yeah. I, yes. uh, there's a question here, ni- nice question here from Ellie B saying, uh, during your research into trees, what has been your most shocking or surprising discovery? 
Um, well, I've had so many <laughs> surprising and shocking discoveries, but lately, you know, I've been looking at carbon a lot and carbon is front and center of lots of people's minds. We, you know, we're in a carbon crisis and we need to manage carbon consumption and storage and all this. So what I've found, I've been looking at forests, where is the carbon stored? And I've looked at everything, you know, the crowns, the bowls, the branches, the mosses, the herbs, the shrubs, the soil. And what I found out is that half of the carbon in our forest is below ground. And, you know, you hear stats like that and you just go, oh, well, that's interesting, but you don't really grab onto it. But when you actually look at that and you say, you know, everything you see above ground is mirrored below ground. I mean, it's in a different shape and form, but there's as much down there as there is above. And yet we know so little about it, right? Yeah. We, know, we know more about the moon than we know about soils for Pete's sakes. And, um, and soils is where half of this gold I call it gold because this is what we're going to be managing, you know, what we are trying to manage now. And we're going to have to put a price on carbon. We're going to have to, you know, start trading in carbon, just like we're tra we traded in gold once and then dollars and now Bitcoins. And well, carbon is the next frontier. Yeah, I, think. I mean, you know, perhaps maybe not trading in carbon, but putting a price on carbon. Or a price, um, and 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 actually, people will will then trade it because you know yes. you'll, you'll say I've got a right to create this much carbon dioxide, and I'll trade that for your, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the other amazing finding was that 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 I found. We've also looked at biodiversity in forests, hydrology, like uh, small mammals, big mammals, and biodiversity is correlated with carbon. And, and biodiversity is correlated also with the ability for, for forests to clean water, to provide oxygen, for ecosystems to function. And it's lovely. It's a gift from, from the heavens that these things are correlated because it makes our jobs easier, right? It, it, it is, if we, you know, it, there's a danger to being like focusing on one thing, but carbon is the, it's the substance of life, right? It's photosynthesis. It's the taking the energy from the sun and converting into all the biomass, all the creatures that we have on earth. And so we can measure that indicator and we can use it as a currency um, to save our ecosystems by incorporating and, it into our economic system. I, and, and these are the reasons why um, you know, the number one thing that you should do if you, you know, is, is, is not to plant trees, but to protect the existing forests and trees, because not only have you got, you know, much more carbon stored in big trees than little trees, yes. <laughs> but also it's, it's in the soil and in the biodiversity. Yes. Uh, yes. There's a very interesting experiment uh, in Staffordshire, which is in the middle of England here, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is, is run by uh, Birmingham University, with which I have a, a connection. And, and the, the, uh, what they're doing is to um, take a section of, uh, of old growth forest and pump carbon dioxide into it to keep the level at what we think the level will be in around the year 2050. Mm -hmm. uh, so in about sort of 30 years time. And mm. to see over the years what happens to the amount of carbon in the soil and what happens to the amount of carbon in the trees, because you might think if there's more carbon dioxide in the air, well, you know, trees are taking carbon dioxide, they're sort of, that's half their food, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, then, uh, you know, maybe they'll grow faster. But on mm -hmm. the other hand, you get more pests and diseases, you get whole sorts of other things sort of changing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so very, very interesting experiment mm -hmm. uh, running over. Uh, over many years yeah really essential experiments the 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 face i think they're called face experiments free air carbon exchange experiments and there's several yeah. around the world yeah you're right they found out incredible things like increasing co2 it sure you can get increasing photosynthetic rates for a little while but it flattens off and the reason it flattens off is that trees need resources from the soil too. So in order to make those proteins and uh, sugars and you know they actually need to get nitrogen and phosphorus and all these mineral nutrients from the soil. And if there's more photosynthesis, they mine the soil for those things to meet those needs, but the soil only has so much capacity. And so it flattens off. And so, you know, you know we can't, it's not a, you know, thinking that that the trees will suck up all that CO2 is, is not, it's, it's false thinking, right? Because they, we all, these ecosystems have so much capacity. And so we really do need to reduce, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere, the greenhouse gases. We really do need to decarbonize our energy sector so that we can bring it down so that these trees can continue to have healthy lives and do the good work that they're doing, but we can't push them too hard because they will collapse, right? We have to yeah. protect them.
Um, so there's a, a, a question here from Jennifer, um, Jennifer who says, when Nature accepted your paper in 1997, mm. uh, she says they coined the phrase wood wide web. Yeah. Has this actually been an advantage or a hindrance in your science? Uh, I think it's been, a, it's been helpful actually. I, I, I think it's, it's like a meme, right? It, it's become so popular, it's become part of the nor normal language now that, that uh, it's actually raised awareness. Um, the wood part is a little bit utilitarian, but oh well, you know, it, 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 the important thing is that people remember it and they think, you know, that the world is a connected place. So I think it's, it's been actually a good thing. Yeah. The, um, the connectedness of, uh, you know, sort of our, our relationship, as we've been talking about, really, the sort of common theme is, you know, our relationship as being part of nature and part, in a way, part of that web. Um, yeah. uh, you know, how, uh, how do we best get across the, the sort of, uh, you know, that message about connectedness? Because if, if yeah. you know, if the people who run Exxon or Shell or, or um, uh, you know, the people who run our education system sort of really believed that we were part of nature, mm -hmm. um, you know, they wouldn't necessarily act as they, as they do. Yeah. So how, how do you kind of get this across? I don't know. I, 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 I could ask you the same question, but I, I would like you to answer that question too, because I think it's a super important question. But I think that, you know, we all have a, a role to play in raising awareness, because I think that people, we, you know, we're creatures of this earth, we evolved from that primordial soup that came from the ocean onto the land and, and, you know, and speciated into humans and trees and, you know, and zebras and all kinds of things. But, um, and so we have this common ancestry, we are people of this earth. And so it's not hard for us to relearn that we are part of nature. We've, it's all in our genes already. And so it's a matter of pushing our governance bodies and the, and the people who use governance to meet their own need, you know, ends and needs to, to engage, you know, to re-engage with this reality. And how do you do that? Well, you know, there's a lots of ways you can work within systems. You can work, work outside of systems. I've done, a, I've done, been in all of them. It's really, we need everybody to do, you know, have their role. Everybody needs to work, you know, some people inside, some people outside on the outside, it's being active, right? Being like, uh, you can be an activist, right? You can actually put your life on the line, like kids and seniors and first nations people are doing in Canada to save our last little bits of old growth forest. Um, you can be an activist in the way you, you have your habits, like you described in your book about what you consume and your choices. Um, um, and then you can pressure your politicians through how you vote, right? And then holding their feet to the fire when they abrogate on their promises to the public. Um, and, you know, that pushing is absolutely necessary from all sectors. And then on the inside, whether you're inside government or inside scientist or whatever, um, then you you know you have at your you have technology at your disposal and so when the time is ready for the government to make a transformational change you're there with the solutions and so so all of these sectors have to work together even though you know it's not you know we're not that organized to be going you do this and I'll do that but 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 we actually have all that in place, right? We do have all these people who do these different things. We all play an important role. Um, and so, and we just got to keep at it. We've got to have good leadership. We've got to have followers. We've got to have good people on the outside, good people on the inside. So I don't know, what do you think, John? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I was just sort of thinking, gosh, I agree with everything she said, and I could have said the same thing if only I had said it first. Uh, I, I um, uh, you know, completely agree with that, the, uh, all of it, and, and there's no but. Uh, I would just add that uh, sometimes when you're trying to persuade people, um, it's really helpful to understand their motives. And the motives that people have for sometimes doing the wrong thing are not always evil motives. Right. So there are evil motives around. There are short-term, you know, like the tobacco industry, knowing mm -hmm. that, you know, they were causing harm and disguising it and so on. And that's happening in the oil industry, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other people who um, actually have, you know, really quite good motives. There are people mm -hmm. who are sort of um, mowing verges and planting, you know, grass from here to further notice because they've just always done it that way. Mm -hmm. And because there is part of us that wants to tame nature. And, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of moving people on in a, in a way that is not confrontational 
um, can also be helpful alongside the activism and the, uh, you know, all yeah. the things that you described yes. where Excellent you really point. do need to hold people's feet to the fire. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. you know, we're, we're out of time now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it never has an hour gone so quickly. And I, um, one of the questions, Suzanne, that you, you sort of uh, said to me, you know, kind of if we ran out of time as if we would, um, uh, you know, it, what would be your, um, if you had written a book called Around the World with 80 People, who would you choose to represent England or Canada? And I was <laughs> trying to think uh, on Canada, would it be Margaret Atwood, um, uh, you know, with wood in her name and nature in her writing? Um, no, I think if, if it doesn't sound too creepy to say so, I'd say Suzanne Simard. I, I think <laughs> <it would be. laughs> um, so, so that, yeah, that's a bit creepy, isn't it? I, I um, and what about, but, and, and for England, would it be Boris Johnson or Jonathan Drury? I think it should be Jonathan Drury. Um, uh, bless you. Now stop flirting, Suzanne. And um, uh, I'm going to uh, say we'll stop there. And I, I thank you to to you, and thank you to uh, the audience, and thank you to Five by Fifteen and Daisy Leach for um, uh, for making this happen.